the equitable development discussion is definitely not exhausted. And, and I like to have real talk. So for me, these conversations, this work speaks to who we are as a country and as a people. If we take a look at some of the unrest that is happening around the country and we begin to peel back the layers, then we see the disproportionate impacts that are happening, the lack of investment in certain areas. And that was because of an old paradigm of the way of thinking of engaging with and designing and all these other aspects that we've been talking about. And if we don't begin to think much more critically, but moving past the point of thinking about these types of issues and really begin to, you know, roll up our sleeves, if you will, engage with folks and begin to make real change, then it's just going to happen more and more often because we are going to end up creating further gaps between people and communities. So those changes have to happen. And when those changes happen, I truly believe that we then will have a stronger country um, so it is, of course, a decision to be made. Do we value communities that have environmental justice concerns? Do we value communities of color? Do we value low-income communities? And are we truly willing to, one, share in the design of the future, or are we going to go with the status quo? Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get right to our guests. Mustafa Ali has been a national speaker, trainer, and facilitator on social and environmental justice issues for the past 17 years. During that time, Mustafa has worked with communities on both the domestic and international front to secure environmental health and economic justice. He currently serves as senior advisor to EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy on environmental justice and community revitalization. And our other guest, Carlton Ely, is an environmentalist, urban planner, and lecturer working to normalize environmental justice during the planning process. He has become an accomplished expert on the topic of equitable development in the public sector, and he is Senior Environmental Protection Specialist for the U.S. EPA in the Office of Environmental Justice. Thank you guys uh, both for being here. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules. Thank you for inviting us. So I think our audience is interested in the human stories behind the stories. I certainly know that I am. So can you each share briefly what brings you to this work and what motivates you to work so hard on issues of equity, environmental justice, and community revitalization? Well, I guess I'll start. Growing up in the social justice and environmental justice movement, especially being a student coming up, you know, it gave me a strong understanding of why these issues are so important and how they have a significant impact in people's lives. And, you know, I often say that when we do our job properly, we can have a real positive effect. And if we don't, 
do our jobs properly, then it can have a real negative effect. And that has to come through collaboration and actually making sure that the voice of communities is a strong part of the process. No one should be creating activities, uh, programs, policy, without there being a strong voice from the communities of those folks who are not only being impacted by the choices that are being made, but also can be strongly benefited and can actually help to move their communities to a much stronger place. I know I've been extremely blessed that I've had the opportunity to work with some of the, the greatest minds and implementers over the past 20 plus years that have really helped to frame for me some really strong principles, uh, of course, building on the environmental justice principles, but a number of other principles that are out there of really making sure that real engagement is a part of the process, that the community is a center focus of the work, but then also making sure that you're always coming back to allow folks who are beneficiaries of work that's done properly to reevaluate and to reassess and to make sure that we're continuing to move forward in a real positive way. Carlton? Thank you. In response to your question, I just want to say that my professional lens as an urban planner was shaped by environmental justice. Actually, in 1994, I had an internship with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in Seattle, Washington, and I was working in the regional office of environmental justice. And I have to start there because after that internship, I eventually went on to graduate school to pursue a degree in urban planning. So when I was in school, I was constantly asking myself, how do things line up with what I learned while an intern working on environmental justice? I also wrote an undergraduate thesis on the topic of environmental justice. So I was very much grounded and had my footing and the topic of environmental justice and often looked at urban planning from the lens of environmental justice and saw that there were a lot of land use issues and there were a lot of issues that were relevant to public policy that were affecting the type of injustices that we were seeing within communities. And unfortunately, when I was in graduate school, I didn't get a lot of satisfactory answers. So by the time I left graduate school in 1998, I left with a degree in one hand, and I left with an unanswered question in the other. And that question was, what does the outcome look like when you address environmental justice properly during the planning process? So for me, what motivates me is the fact that for 19 years, I've really been obsessed with trying to get satisfactory answers. So this has really been about being intellectually curious and spending time, investing the time in order to really uncover those stories that are better reflective in terms of who's doing good work, who's being proactive and responsible in guiding the changes within their communities, how do you encourage more community-driven solutions, and how do we advance goals of community parity? And it's being done. So for me, it was about really trying to get answers that I didn't have the liberty to receive when I was in graduate school, and that's what motivates me. Yeah, and this is Mustafa. I would just add that for me, I've spent probably the majority of my career outside of Washington in communities. And for me, it's always been about trying to find ways to literally help people to save their lives and to move their communities from what I've always described as from surviving to thriving. And, you know, that's a paradigm shift that for a lot of folks, sometimes can cause some angst at best 
or at least I guess I should say, uh, because there's power sharing that goes into that conversation as well. So when you actually get away from Washington, and I wish that more federal officials did that, and actually spend time on people's porches, having a conversation with them, learning what they're dealing with on a daily basis, in their kitchens, hearing about you know the things that are going on in their lives and how if they could only get traction, you know things could change and move in a much more progressive and, and proactive way. That does something to you because it's no longer just about theory, it's about real people who are having real lives and who are looking for real opportunities. Speaking of which, in terms of the paradigm shift, this year, U.S. EPA will be sponsoring the 15th annual New Partners for Smart Growth Conference in Portland, Oregon. How would you both assess the progress made by the smart growth movement in general over the past 15 years? And how much progress do you think has been made incorporating environmental and economic justice and equitable development into the smart growth movement and conversation? This is Carlton. I'll start first. One, you raised a very interesting point, and I think for your listeners, we should offer a little bit of context. This year will be the 15th New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, but I think people may not be aware that the first Partners for Smart Growth Conference was actually held in 1996. The convener for that event was the Urban Land Institute, and then in 2000, the Urban Land Institute made a decision that it couldn't continue the conference and the local government commission opted to become the convener. So this conversation has been ongoing for about 19 years. But from my perspective, and I'm very critical because I have worked on these issues for a while. Again, I have a background in urban planning, so I know this has been a conversation that planners have visited in terms of issues of advocacy planning and equity planning and how to advance goals of community parity. This has been a reoccurring theme in planning over the span of about 50 years. It was in 1965 that Paul Davidoff came up with the concept of advocacy planning. So my assessment of things to sum up is really I'm not satisfied yet. I'm glad we have had conversations, deliberate conversations, but I'm also mindful of the fact that when you put it in context, the conversation of how to make our communities more sustainable and more livable has been ongoing for about 19. And we've only been having a conversation for six. So it's kind of like we've had a jump start for 13 for only advancing the status quo. And now we're trying to basically do everything that should be part of that holistic solution. And I think that when we set our priorities in that manner, it doesn't help to solve the longstanding challenges. We should have been addressing these issues and having difficult conversations over that span of 19 years, as opposed to trying to refine an approach to how do we improve the physical aspects of our communities, rather than focusing on the fact that these long-standing issues that we have difficulty dealing with are commingled with the process of improving our communities. Yeah, and I would agree with the things that Carlton just shared. I would say that there's been incremental change, at least from where I sit. There are a number of additional tools now, resources, best practices that are there to really help people to understand the value that environmental justice and equitable development brings to the smart growth paradigm. But the thing that 
I've noticed as I travel around the country to various conferences is that there are well-meaning practitioners sometimes who are a part of the process, but I still hope that we can begin to enhance the voice of communities in that process, not only at the events, but in the planning. So I think that that's something that, you know, we need to continue to work with and to make sure that we are expanding our stakeholder base of other types of professionals, minority professionals and others, of course, who should be having an opportunity to continue to play a strong role in the process also. Because when we talk about these issues, of course, we're talking about it in a holistic way. And in that holisticness, you know, we're not only talking about making sure that folks are having an understanding about the ways that transportation and housing and public health and and the economic aspects also, but also the diversity that a number of different types of minds can bring to this process, as long as they're making sure that they are honoring what communities are asking for in that process. So, Carlton, I know that a, a big focus of your work, a focus that you have pursued with great passion, has been to embed the principles of environmental justice into the planning process. Why does this work resonate with you so much personally, and do you feel progress is being made? Thanks for revisiting that question. You're giving me another opportunity to bite the apple. First, let me say that in terms of you know principles of environmental justice in the context of planning, I personally believe and this is, you know, my value system is that when you focus on environmental justice in the context of planning, it doesn't shift the attention from making communities better. It actually results in better community outcomes. My personal drivers are driven by a number of things. One, I have an undergraduate degree in sociology, and sociologists have a duty to give voice to the unspoken. I have a degree in urban planning, and urban planners are supposed to speak up for people who don't have a voice in the planning process, and they're supposed to encourage alterational policies that may not meet their needs. And then, of course, I also have the privilege of being a public servant. And public service should be a public trust. For those of us who work at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, it's important to remember that when we join the agency, we're actually sworn in. We're not hired. And so we're supposed to take an oath to the U.S. Constitution, and that's supposed to work for all citizens. It shouldn't only focus on how do we develop policies that work for those who are in the economic mainstream, that work for those who are in the middle class, and we know we need to have an important middle class, but we also need to make sure that we are helping people to reach the middle class, and we need to make sure that we are developing public policy that really works for those segments of the population that may be underserved and vulnerable. And so those really are the basic core values that I have that press me to focus on this issue the way that I have done so over the span of the past 10 years. The other thing I just want to mention briefly is the fact that as a professional planner, I realize that there are a lot of narratives that aren't being told. When we Consider, for example, messaging about sustainable urban policy, and when we talk about good projects, the agency has its favorites. For example, Atlantic Station has always been a favorite for those who subscribe to notions of smart growth, or maybe they will talk about Seaside Florida, which is a project that's often advocated and promoted by those who subscribe to the philosophy of new urbanism. I'm of the opinion that there are a broad number of experts who reflect all types of stripes 
who are doing great work and who are innovative and they represent untapped talent. And I want to make sure that we do a better job of advocating and sharing their work and making sure that our mainstream counterparts are aware of how they are also improving the built environment. There are professional associations of minority planners. There are professional associations of minority architects. Uh, who, and also there are community builders from the faith-based development sector. All of these individuals, these associations, these groups are doing great work. And what we have is a problem of bandwidth uh, in the sense that we often tell the same stories. And what I have been committed to as an urban planner and as a public servant is making sure that we elevate the stories that need to be told that come from a more diverse background that reflect America's strength in terms of its diversity, because if we only keep going back to the same solutions, we're going to keep getting the same type of outcomes. And from what I've seen, many of these outcomes aren't sustainable. There's a lot of greenwashing going on. And where personally, I feel that the leaders who are doing a job in order to address the issues that are currently gaps are the ones who have been community builders, the ones who have been having conversations about equitable development, the ones who may come from minority professional organizations like the National Organization of Minority Architects or the Planning in the Black Community Division of the American Planning Association. They've been doing so much great work, but the public isn't as aware of it. And so I feel it's my duty as a public servant to make sure that those stories get told. So for several years now, the Office of Environmental Justice has supported a special pre-conference workshop on equitable development just prior to the beginning of the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference, but not so this year. What's different about this year's conference? Have we exhausted the equitable development discussion? To your latter question, no, we have not. We definitely haven't exhausted the equitable development conversation. PolicyLink just had their equity summit in Los Angeles in October. There were 3,000 attendees for that event. I say that only because it's a clear indicator of the pent-up demand for this type of work. The National Organization of Minority Architects had their national conference in New Orleans also in October, and they spent three days having a conference that focused on the theme of social equity through design. So I want to emphasize the fact that we haven't exhausted the equitable development discussion. Again, my compliments to those who were involved in the development of the equitable development workshop from 2010 to 2005. I believe SCIO played an important role in terms of the development of that workshop over the years. But I think one of the goals associated with the workshop that may not have always been clear to the public is the fact that the principals or leads wanted to figure out how to better integrate the conversation of equitable development into the conference. And so at the start of this year, a decision was made, I guess we should say they're piloting an idea that would focus on better integration by taking what would be the content for the workshop and folding that content into the conference. So it's a pilot. They're going to see how it works. And I think people who plan to attend the upcoming conference in Portland should say what is on their minds. They should ask themselves and think very critically, does this approach work? If it does, say so. And if it doesn't work as well, you should feel 
free to say so as well. But there are times when we try to experiment a little bit, and we're going to see how this works. So there isn't a workshop, but the Office of Environmental Justice is on the hook to still deliver the same provocative programmatic content. And so our job is to make sure whether it is one day or three days that we give the audience exactly what they're looking for. And it's been our observation that the audience wants to have a very deliberate conversation about what are the gaps, how do we effectively address these longstanding issues, and how do we make sure that we get on, on the right track. And this, this is Mustafa. So I would just like to add that the equitable development discussion is definitely not exhausted. And I like to have real talk. So for me, these conversations, this work speaks to who we are as a country and as a people. If we take a look at some of the unrest that is happening around the country and we begin to peel back the layers, then we see the disproportionate impacts that are happening, the lack of investment in certain areas. And that was because of an old paradigm of the way of thinking of engaging with and designing and all these other aspects that we've been talking about. And if we don't begin to think much more critically, but moving past the point of thinking about these types of issues and really begin to, you know, roll up our sleeves, if you will, engage with folks and begin to make real change, then it's just going to happen more and more often because we are going to end up creating further gaps between people and communities. And so those changes have to happen. And when those changes happen, I truly believe that we then will have a stronger country so it is, of course, a decision to be made. Do we value communities that have environmental justice concerns? Do we value communities of color? Do we value low-income communities? And are we truly willing to, one, share in the design of the future, or are we going to go with the status quo? So for me, it's really that simple. We can make change, or we can continue down the path that, unfortunately, we've been going down for the past few decades. And I appreciate Mustafa offering some real talk, and I want to offer a little bit from my perspective because Mustafa raised a very important point. In August of 2014, Mustafa and I were actually in Spartanburg, South Carolina, for a public program that was designed to celebrate the progress that was happening in that city with the Regenesis Community Development Project. And this project is an award-winning project it received a National Planning Excellence Award. The gentleman who has been leading this effort is now in the South Carolina legislature. It reflects everything that we really want to see when we want to look at the concept of environmental justice being addressed through planning. The important thing to note about when we were in Spartanburg, South Carolina, is that the day before we were in Spartanburg, the civil unrest that was in Ferguson, Missouri, had just ended. And on the next day in Spartanburg, South Carolina, when public comments were being made and when people were talking about the progress in Spartanburg, the events in Ferguson were not lost in terms of the remarks of people in Spartanburg, South Carolina. They understood that the reason why Spartanburg was in the position that it was in by having a celebration juxtaposed to Ferguson is because they decided 15 years ago to make the investments up front. 
rather than make investments after the fact. And so I think the teachable moment here is that we need to think a little bit more critically about how do we make investments in the communities that really need them. And we need to see the direction of those funds as being an investment. It is not a cost because I would rather see my tax dollars going towards investments that advance environmental justice, that help to clean up pollution, that help to then in turn help residents to improve their communities through community-driven processes rather than try to triage a problem after it gets out of control. And I think that's the teachable moment. Those are the type of examples that we really need to compare. Do we want more Ferguson's and East Baltimore situations, or do we want more situations like Regenesis or the Bayview Project in Virginia or the work of the Environmental Health Coalition in terms of Barry O'Logan or even the great work that faith-based developers like Floyd Flake have been doing in Jamaica, Queens, New York? I would rather have more of the latter than the former. We ask every guest these three questions, and they're designed to be kind of short answers. We call it the lightning round questions. So if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? This is Carlton. I'm going to say social impact assessment. No more perfunctory social impact assessments. This has been a long-standing problem. I believe proponents for environmental justice and equitable development will work themselves out of a job if social impact assessments were taken more seriously. NEPA was established in 1969. The provisions for social impact assessment have been there for 20 plus years. And we have to move beyond what is the current trend whereby often we treat these assessments as if they are a check mark in the process. And for me, If local governments aren't going to do the assessment and if the contractors that they hire aren't going to do the assessments properly, we need to ask ourselves the question, how can we help citizens to take the steps to probably take ownership and do the social impact assessments themselves? Because one of the values or principles of environmental justice is respecting local knowledge and uh, citizen science. And we often see that there are deficits in terms of persons participating in the planning process, but a lot of the information that's gathered through the process of preparing a social impact assessment normally feeds into the planning process. So the exercise is actually a good example of citizen planning. And so for me, if I could pick one leveraging point, I would focus on social impact assessment. Mustafa? I would say honoring the voice of communities and the expertise that exists inside of them. And I think through that, we would have a much more effective process. I think that our results would be better. And I think that through that sort of collaborative, true collaborative engagement, I think that our long-term results would be much, much stronger. If I could have another point, then I would say making sure that we're redirecting our resources and our finances in a way that actually honors some of the principles of environmental justice and honors the sacrifice that's happening inside of communities and making sure that folks who are in nonprofits and other entities who are stakeholders are really trying to be proactive and progressive in the thought and actions that are happening inside of community, making sure that we are doing a better job of funding them so that the real work that needs to happen and is happening also is being supported. 
what one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable, just and sustainable future? What would you say is the one thing any person could do to advance this conversation? My very simple, plain layperson's recommendation for anyone, it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are, take ownership of sustainability. And what I mean by that is challenge parties who use the term carelessly. If sustainability is based on meeting a triple bottom line standard, that standard has to be met. Otherwise, what you're doing isn't sustainable. In fact, it's just greenwashing. And so I think it's important for everyone to realize in your listening audience that environmentalists don't have a patent or trademark on the term or the concept of sustainability. We all do uh, as citizens. Sustainability simply means stewardship. So I, I think personally, all citizens need to figure out how they can take sustainability back, take ownership of it, and make sure that we effectively push the envelope so that we actually address issues that align with the social pillar. If you encourage sustainability, there should be productive harmony. There shouldn't be this imbalance where we're only improving the environment and we're only improving the economy and then we just let the third leg just resolve itself. It's not going to resolve itself. We have to be deliberate. We have to take clear steps and think critically about how to make it work. And part of that is is that we need to make sure that the things that we call sustainable actually are. And we need to be bold and audacious enough to challenge individuals, associations, and say, hey, I know that for you know five, ten years you've been calling your city sustainable, but we have a widening wealth gap. I think that's a clear indication that we have some problems. And we need to take back how people use this label of sustainability. It either is or it isn't. And I'm a purist when it comes to the issue of sustainability. It's been the issue of my lifetime when we used to refer to it as sustainable development. So that is my one recommendation is take ownership of sustainability. Don't let other sectors feel that they are the only ones who can market and claim ownership of this concept. Mustafa, let me just put a spin on that question for you. Can you achieve sustainability without achieving social justice? (laughs) You cannot achieve sustainability without social justice. And as I share with folks around the country, because I hear lots of times individuals say that I don't have power in the process. It's the folks in Washington or other folks in leading business and industries. And what I share with folks is that you do have power. And the only way you don't is if you give it up and allow someone else to determine what the future is going to look like. And the social justice movement for decades now has been working to mold a much more better future. So if you do not have social justice as a leading component of sustainability, then you're going to get what you've gotten in the past. I use a concept that I call EMI, educate, motivate, and innovate. And I share that with folks all across the country because once you have some knowledge, sometimes it's basic knowledge, sometimes it's in-depth knowledge, sometimes it's traditional knowledge, all those things coming together, it begins to change the way that you view your world and the role that you play in it. 
and the opportunities that exist. And then you get motivated and then you begin to bring your innovation into the mix, if you will. So I think that through tools like that or thinking like that and making sure that we're honoring social justice, we can actually make a smart growth process better. We can make sustainability better because it will actually resonate with folks because they are connected to it and that they see a role that they play in it. So if you guys are successful in the work that you're doing, what does the world look like 30 years from now? Okay, I'll start. Again, this is Carlton Ailey. I think in response to the question that you just asked in terms of what does the world look like, I think it's important to unpackage what should we see. And what I mean by that is Ron Sims was the former King County executive in Washington, and he often talked about high watermarks for social indicators. So in short, in 30 years, we should see a return to or we should exceed these high watermarks for progressive social indicators. We should see an increase in home ownership. We should see an increase in entrepreneurship. We should see an increase in educational attainment. Civic engagement should be up. Public morale should be up. Wealth disparities should be down and should be narrowing. So I think it's important for us to unpackage really what should we see when we ask the question of what will things look like. And another thing is when I lecture and when I speak to audiences around the country, I often talk about principles of equitable development. And those principles of equitable development reflect the changes that should be evident in terms of our landscape. And so when we talk about concepts of equitable development, they can feel conceptual. And so we have to make sure that we tie what we believe to something that's going to be physical uh, that people can see and touch and visit. And so in addition to reaching and exceeding what were high watermarks in terms of social indicators, certain principles of equitable development should be evident as we make improvements to our physical landscape. Mustafa? I mean, it's really simple for me. It's seven words, a world where equality is a reality. And it's really that simple, where environmental justice and equitable development is a natural part of the process and not thought as an add-on or something extra that needs to be done, but it automatically becomes a part of our process from the beginning to the end. So it's real simple, a world where, where equality is a reality. What a wonderful concept to end our discussion with you on. Thank you both for giving us this time. I know you're both exceptionally busy. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners will appreciate it. And we look forward to continuing to collaborate with you on all kinds of great efforts. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for this week. We want to thank you all for listening today. And we hope you got a lot out of today's very thoughtful conversation with Mustafa Ali and Carlton Ely from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio.